Genesis 18. Let's, let's begin there reading. Now, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he raised his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and make yourselves comfortable under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread so that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said to him, So, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of the fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. He was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, There, in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you at this time next year. And behold, your wife, Sarah, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become old, am I to have pleasure, my Lord being old also? But the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I actually give birth to a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and to him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely as the outcry which has come to me indicates. And if not, I will know. Then to Joshua chapter 5. We'll actually begin reading in verse 8 to set the context, but we'll concentrate in a few minutes on verses 13 through 15. Here we read, 
God's inerrant word again. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they recovered. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. Then on the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and roasted grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now it came about, when Joshua was by Jericho, he raised his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our enemies? He said, No. Rather, I've come now as captain of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the ground and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our voices to you to thank you for your word, for not leaving us groping about in darkness, but knowing the truth. And the truth this morning is, is that our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal, and that he appeared to Abraham in a, in a fashion before he even took on flesh. He appeared to Joshua and led the army in a form even before he took on flesh. This is a Jesus that can save because he is indeed the Lord. And we pray that he would do a good work in our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 4th century <clears throat> A.D., there was a, a fellow in Alexandria, Egypt. He was an elder in the church there. And he had, uh, he had a good deal of struggle with the supernatural. And we know that because he concluded that this Jesus in the Bible that was born in Nazareth, whom we've just read, Jesus the Nazarene, uh, that, that had to be his, his origin point. Because that's the origin point of people when they're born. It's, it's there at the birth. And, uh, and so he began teaching this. One of the, one of the most, in, indict, uh, when they brought the indictment against him, this is one of the most crucial things he said. He said other things equally as bad, but this one's nice and simple and very perspicuous. There was a time when the sun was not. Well, the pastor of the church there, Alexander of Alexandria, 
said, whoa, this is wrong. This whole thing, including some other things going on in the, in the church at the time, led to A.D. 325. And in A.D. 325, Constantine, the emperor, said, we've got to have some peace in the church because as the church goes, my empire will go. And so he called for a council, an international council of church leaders. Some 318 men gathered in a little place called Nicaea. And there they, among the many other things, they said they dealt with Arian, Arius's followers, Arians. They excom he had already been excommunicated from the church at Alexandria. They excommunicated him further, if you can do it further, and said he is condemned. He's a heretic because he doesn't believe the right things about Jesus. And this is what we're to believe about Jesus in that eternal relationship with the Father. The Father and the Son are homoousia. That simply means they are the same stuff. They're the very same essence. They're one and the same. In other words, he's eternal. There was never a time when he was not. He was always. People still struggle with the supernatural. They still struggle with this, believing that Jesus Christ could come into this world having taken on flesh and that that was not his beginning point. How could this be if he's just taken on flesh? Well, I would just suggest, and this is a throwaway for you, but it's important, that if you have that trouble with Jesus, you've got to have the same problem with God, period. Because he, God is spirit and didn't take on flesh, and so then he must not have ever been originated. But, of course, he's eternal because he's spirit. Now, there was a deacon in that same church down there in, in Egypt. His name was Athanasius. He was just a punk kid. He was a deacon, but he was still just a kid. And he, he traveled with Alexander, but, but around the time of his 20th birthday, he had written a little book. It was called On the Incarnation, and it's still a classic in the church today, still recognized as vital to the understanding of the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, but also it begins talking about Christ's natures, divine and human, as they relate inseparably, but separate. So if they're never confused, never distorted, never commingled, the Lord Jesus Christ is always divine and human without any confusion. Now some of y'all are thinking, somebody 20 years old wrote that book? Yeah, he apparently was not only a precocious young man, but he was also well endowed by the Spirit to provide for the church such a, a monumental little volume still required reading in better theological settings. 
not badder ones, but better ones. Well, Jesus is eternal. That's the whole point of this little bit of historical rehearsal. Jesus is eternal and uh, existed before his physical birthing in Bethlehem, before he carried on any life on this earth. He was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. The very fact that Jesus would, would say, I am the light of the world, suggest existence before his creation, or before his birth, rather. But we also learn in the scriptures that he's also the one who created the light. Who hung the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies. Which would suggest that he's prior to creation. He is always. Well, these two passages help us begin understanding this way back in Genesis and again in Joshua. We see his pre-incarnate work taking place in the Old Testament church setting. So I want to start in flip side since I ended in Joshua and turn there. We're going to start there. And the first thing I want us to consider is that the pre-incarnate Savior is who we're reading of here in Joshua. Because he's the Lord. You can have no savior and there can be no savior work without him being the Lord. This is a mistake that evangelicals have, have made in the past uh, 100 years. And it began with a faulty view of sin. And that led to a faulty view of salvation and that led to a faulty view of Jesus. And they bifurcated his lordship and his saviorhood and the church had to engage them and answer this faulty teaching. You can have no savior unless he is the Lord of the universe. Because only someone who's almighty, all-knowing, all-present can also be saving and delivering you. This passage in Joshua is what has been called by some a theophany, by others a Christophany. Theophany, theos, you see the word there, God. It's an appearance of God. Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Taking on his Christ, his Messiah work. John Gill was an 18th century scholar, and he, he set forth the history of interpretation on this passage this way, and I'm just going to use it and summarize. First, he says we can tell from this passage that this is, this is the divine being, this is, this is the eternal God, because of the worship that Joshua offers. 
Did you see that? He fell in obeisance before this one that had come. And by the way, did you notice how he was mentioned, how he was described? There was a man standing there. In other words, there was some, some form of manhood that he had assumed. And yet, we find out that he's the Lord. He worshipped him. You say, well, you know, you know, maybe he was just scared to death. No, he fell in worship. And by the way, we know this is the Lord by the very fact that he was not instructed to get up. You know your Bibles, I hope. You've heard me refer to this passage in Revelation 19 many, many times. The episode there where the angel appears to John and John sees this, this, this heavenly being and he falls down on his face and he says, no, get up, get up. You only worship God. I'm just a servant like you. This man in appearance that Joshua acknowledges as Lord doesn't say that, does he? Any man, any, any angel would have said, get up. You're not supposed to worship me. Just like you do to your children, parents. Just as anyone in an authoritative position should say to anyone who begins showing irrational signs of too much, too much hero worship. I'm just a man like you, but this man doesn't say that. And again, he called him Lord. He subjected himself to servanthood, falling down before him, acknowledging that, okay, you're taking over the army by the ground. Remove your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. You remember this happened back in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses? And there he, 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 he described himself and he named himself, God that is, I am. And that's exactly who we have here, the great I am. And notice too, know are you, are you for us or are you against us? You for us, you for the enemy. And he said, no, rather I have come now as captain of the army. Captain of the army of the Lord. And there again, it's Yahweh. It's those capital letter, L-O-R-D. In other words, I'm here to take over for you, Joshua. Here we see the Savior aspect of the Lord. He came to save. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to save his people from their enemies. Our catechism so wonderfully says the work of Jesus as king, one of the things he does as king is that he not only subdues us to himself, but he conquers our enemies and his enemies. He had come to conquer the enemies. He took over. 
In the New Testament, we read of our Savior being the King. We read of him being, Jesus said, that's why I came, was to be the King. We also read of him being the head of the church. That's exactly who he is here. He's taking over. He's the head. He's the king. He's the captain. He's everything you need, Joshua. And he had the form of a man. Now, he's not going to take on the, the very nature of man, the flesh of man, until the incarnation. But here he took on the form. So he appeared to them to be a man the second person of the eternal Godhead. Holy, holy ground. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 17, we read about the armies of heaven coming and the one who's leading them is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not unlike this passage in Joshua. Back in chapter 17, we read of Jesus being the warrior leader, the warrior prince of the people. And that's exactly who he is here in Joshua. This early typological picture of our Lord when he came and did work in his pre-incarnate state. See, it reminds us that Though he hadn't come to earth, he was always active on earth. And even though he is no longer on the earth, he's ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the, 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 the wicked, the living, and the dead. We know that he's also engaged with his people here and now. I'm going to go away, he said, but I'll send one just like me, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. He's never absent. He's always present. That's the kind of Savior you need, isn't it? Well, then, the Genesis passage. The Genesis passage is remarkable, isn't it? You know, you, you just read it and you just kind of, if, if you're prone to this sort of thing, you kind of get little, little, little tingly things on your neck or maybe on your back. You've got these three. You've got these three men. They come. And here, of course, it's the context of... of the covenant promise, the promise to Abraham that you're going to have a descendant. And here he's, 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 he's making the point of how it's going to be. And so, and notice, by the way, this is something that, that John Currid, who's one of the premier Old Testament scholars of our day, uh, Currid makes this point, as with many others, uh, Robert Candlish, the 19th century Scottish scholar, both Old Testament and New Testament, made this point before Currid did. Significant events in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, occur around mills. It was common in Near Eastern literature to read of kings of, of the surrounding nations 
setting the table, having banquets, and there they would do their business to whittle out arrangements, agreements, compacts, covenants with their neighbors for peace, for safety. We saw with Jesus walking with the two on the road, it ended in their home around a table having a meal. And there's where Jesus was most clearly and finally revealed to them in the breaking of bread. And that's what they said when they went back to Jerusalem and told them, said it was at the table. When he broke the bread, we knew who it was. No doubt about it. And here, Abraham offers a meal and, and these three come. Do you notice you've got the three and the times it says the three said something, but, but it comes to, but the Lord said. They rose up to leave and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Not what we're about to do, but what I'm about to do. There's been much about this three, three men. Obviously, one of them is the Lord God Almighty. Some have speculated, well, this is a picture of the Trinity. So you got the, the Father and the Spirit, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ. I, yeah, we're not going to go there today. It's simply enough to know, and by the way, Jesus is simply enough for us to recognize that Jesus, the commander of the army, the one who deals with his people, the one who is the mediator and the surety of the covenant, is here to keep a covenant promise. Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. This child is going to be the descendant. He's going to be the seed. He's the seed promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Abraham learned a good deal. We read on, for I've chosen him so that he may command his children, his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. <clears throat> Excuse me, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. The blessing to Abraham, and then it's right on the precipice of the curse of Sodom and Gomorrah. The blessing and the curse motif running side by side right here in this passage. But for our purposes, what I want us to see is how among these three, the one singled out is designated the Lord. Again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jehovah. You say, well, how, you know, that could be the father. It could be. The father is sometimes spoken of as, as the Lord, all caps. That that Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, it's called. 
But in the old but in the New Testament, how often do we see those wonderful prophecies of old, those historical passages of old, brought into the New Testament and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ? Almost always, they're a reference to New Testament interpreting Old Testament, right? Scripture interpreting Scripture. So the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's speaking here of this covenant that he is engaged in with Abraham. When we come to the baptismal waters, when we come to the Lord's table, we're not dealing with a God that's, that's somehow out there. We're dealing with a God who's with us. Emmanuel, the Lord. The pre-incarnate Lord and the pre-incarnate Savior. Let me read you a few snippets here. This from John Currid I mentioned earlier. To dine together was a sign of peaceful agreement. Thus, God is coming to eat with Abraham is a sign that they are at peace in union and that God is about to bless him. Candlish, I mentioned earlier. The second person in the Trinity who bears the double character of God or the Lord and the messenger of the covenant or angel of the Lord condescends on this occasion to be Abraham's guest and becomes known to him in the breaking of bread, just as we read in Luke 24. You remember the occasion, in addition to the Emmaus Road episode that ended with a meal? Remember the occasion when the disciples were fishing during this 40-day period, and they hadn't caught anything, and the Lord suddenly appears to them. And he says, hey, put your net over here. They did. They caught a bunch. And when they turn around, Jesus is already frying fish on the fire. And he says, come have breakfast with me. And there they knew who was the dispenser of all the fish that they just caught. And it could be none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was in that mill context. It's the reason Christians enjoy getting together and having meals together in homes, in restaurants. It's because it's a wonderful time to commune with one another, to fellowship with one another. Historically, it's been an occasion for people making peace with one another. And here the Lord is making peace. And that's, we're going to hear a lot about that from the world, aren't we, this month? You'll see signs that say peace. We'll see peace ornaments hanging from trees. 
but there is only one peace that matters. That's the peace that comes from the Prince of Peace, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we have that wonderful, special occasion where we come to the table. The passage we're going to read is in Luke, coincide with the table, and there the Lord Jesus Christ says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see the relationship again of the mill and the covenant. He's our God, we're his people, and he takes care of his people. He came to take care of the people in Joshua. He came to take care of Abraham in this context in Genesis 18 and to remind him that it's not just about now, but it's about forever. He didn't just come and say, oh, Abraham, you know, I know you're old, Sarah's old. Hey, you know what, I'm gonna get you through. I'll take care of you. But he gave them the promise, the son. And he kept his covenant, he kept his promise. And we're here because of it. Now the question is, the question is this, is this the Jesus you trust? The Lord who is strong and able to run an army and the Lord who is able to give children to old people. See, that was Arius' problem. He didn't believe in a Jesus like that. He didn't believe in the supernatural. Folks, listen, you can't be a Christian and not be a supernaturalist. And you can't say you believe in Jesus and not be changed by the supernatural Jesus. Abraham was changed. Joshua was changed. You see what the result was? Joshua fell on his face in worship. He was visibly affected. There had been none of this with Joshua. Oh, yes, I believe in the Lord. We have people in this room that talk like that. And there's nothing life-changing in their life. They go right on living like the world. And if that's you, you need to repent and believe in this Jesus, not the Jesus you've made up in your own little mind. Because that Jesus won't be there for you like he was for Abraham and there for Joshua. And that's the Jesus you want. That's the Jesus you need. Father, thank you for these passages. Remarkable when we sit and think about it. Amazing, in fact. We ask now that you might be pleased to, to cause our hearts to, to be moved like Abraham's 
that we would want to be with this Lord. And we'd want to, we'd want to eat with this Lord, and we'd want to to spend time with this Lord. And like Joshua, we want we 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 would submit to this Lord. We'd fall on our face before this Lord and recognize that He's the one that can save us from our sins. We ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.